0: If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and open up to Luke chapter 6, where we are in the middle of what is called uh, Jesus's Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6. We're going a little slower through this part of the Gospel, uh, since Jesus' teaching in these verses connects so powerfully with life uh, in this fallen world. So we're going to go a little slower uh, for today, and then in a couple of weeks again, and This morning we're looking at verses 36 to 42. So Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 42. And I'll invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me now as we consider God's word? Father, we do ask for your help today. These are uh, weighty verses from the Lord Jesus. And so we ask for your help. We ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination. We know that anytime we open the Bible to read and to think and to study and to consider, it's a spiritual act, and therefore we cannot do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we pray, Father, for illumination now. I pray that You would keep me from error and that You would make the words of my mouth faithful and true to the words of the Scriptures. And we pray, Father, that You would please shape in all of us uh, the discernment that's necessary in these days to hold fast to the truth. Father, we do ask for Your help. We pray that You would build up Your church now through the Scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last several years, the evangelical church in America has witnessed a surprising rise in something we might call deconversion stories. The phenomenon is just what it sounds to be. A prominent Christian deconverts from his or her former belief system. They may choose to turn away from the faith entirely, or they, they may simply decide to follow what they consider to be a less narrow version of Christianity. And that's really the theme of all of these decon, deconversion stories, friends. The details are, are always different, but there is this common thread tying such stories together. It's the idea that biblical Christianity is too judgmental. And therefore, we should follow something less abrasive. For example, a prominent recording artist who professes to be a Christian was asked why she changed her mind on homosexuality. Her answer, who am I to judge? Or another professing Christian author that I've read now rejects the doctrine that he was raised with. Why? Because such dogmatic views, he says, are too harsh. And Jesus himself taught us not to judge. In fact, you could make the case that John 3.16 is no longer the most quoted verse in the Bible. It's now Matthew 7, or for our purpose this morning, Luke 6. Judge not, and you will not be judged. What are we to make of these things, friends? Is the church's problem a spirit of judgmentalism that excludes vast numbers of people simply because they don't match up with our preferences? Should more of us deconvert from our supposedly fundamentalist approach to Christianity? Is it disobeying Jesus to say something is wrong? Is it disobeying Jesus to say someone is wrong? These are important questions. Important because, as we read in our text today, Jesus does say, Judge not, and you will not be judged. So, we want to obey Jesus, just like we emphasized last week. We want to take his word seriously, but we want to do so in a way that takes the full scope of Jesus' word seriously. This is the point that many deconverts miss. The same Jesus who said in Luke 6, judge not, also says in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And since scripture interprets scripture, obeying Jesus means taking all of His words into account, not simply the ones that we like. So, these are important questions. It's important because we must obey Jesus, but it's also important for our calling to be salt and light in this world. Listen, friends, the God of this age is the self. Right. The self reigns supreme in our culture. And that means we're going to need to be ready to answer what is going to be the most common retort to us when we tell people about the Gospel. Who are you to judge? If the self is God, who are you to judge me? So that's what I'd like for us to do this morning. I want us to spend our time considering just what Jesus means when He calls His church not to judge or condemn, but to forgive and to display generosity. How do we obey the Lord in these matters? How do we walk in love while also holding fast to the truth. That's what I want us to try to think about today. In the context of Luke chapter 6, Jesus is in the middle of that sermon on the plain, as we noted, and the theme of Jesus' teaching, you'll remember, is found back in verse 27. Look again, verse 27, where Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. That, friends, is the heart of kingdom discipleship. In the kingdom of God, Jesus' followers live with an upside down, we could even say a radical approach to love. We do not merely love those who love us, we love even those who hate us. And this call to love, verse 27, frames the verses that we're considering this morning. What does it mean to love your enemies? Well, verse 36 and following gives you the answer. Jesus tells us. He's continuing here to flesh out what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. More specifically, Jesus gives us two principles in these verses that can help us put love into practice. Two principles that help us put love into practice. The first is an exhortation to mercy, and the second is a warning against self-righteousness. And what I pray that we see this morning, friends, is that these principles help us to avoid judgmentalism on the one hand, while also contending for the truth on the other. And, Lord willing, as we live this way, we won't see more deconversions, but rather more conversions, as sinners are saved by grace and brought to see the love of God through the testimony of the church. So let's consider these two principles together beginning with the exhortation in verses 36 to 38. Jesus tells us, be quick with the gift of mercy. That's principle number one. Be quick with the gift of mercy. We looked briefly at verse 36 last week, but it really belongs to this section. There's a a heading break in your English translation there between 36 and 37. That's probably not the best heading break. Uh, 36 goes with these verses. It goes with 37 and following. Notice again, Jesus' clear call to mercy. Verse 36, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, mercy is a very rich theme in the Scriptures. So let's try to put some definition on it this morning. Mercy is actually an outworking of God's goodness. Mercy is an expression of the goodness of God. It's it's the gift of kindness to someone in misery regardless of what that person deserves. Mercy then differs somewhat from grace. Grace sees a person as guilty before God and responds with forgiveness. Mercy sees a person as suffering under the consequences of sin and responds with compassion, regardless of what that person deserves, even if that compassion is undeserved. And in that sense, friends, mercy is uniquely an expression of God's own heart. We see this all through the Scriptures. In Exodus 34, when God announces His name, He says that His name is the Lord, a God slow to anger and abounding in grace and mercy and steadfast love. Grace is uniquely an expression of God's heart. God's mercy is great, the Bible says. God's mercy is Tender like a father towards his children. God's mercy is showered down upon thousands and thousands of people. And even after seasons of judgment, God's mercy returns, Scripture tells us, and it endures. His mercy never ends. And God's mercy is astonishingly new every morning. Every sunrise, friends, is preaching to you the mercy of God. And that is the mercy that He gives to each and every human being, to the just and to the unjust, to the wicked and to the righteous. The sun rose upon the worst sinner today, and it rose upon you and me. God gives mercy to each and every person. Of course, as Christians, we know God's mercy in a deeper way, or we could say in a more particular way. God's mercy to the believer is nothing less than the gift of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is our merciful high priest who meets us in our need and makes atonement for our sin and then brings us into the presence of God. Christ embodies for us the riches of God's mercy, Paul says in Ephesians. So that through Jesus, we feast on the merciful goodness of God. That's the Gospel, friends. The Gospel is not a morsel of mercy, but a feast of mercy. And there at the head of the table is the Heavenly Father saying, taste and see that I am good. And you feast until you're full. Friends, do you see the amazing depth of the mercy of God? That's just scratching the surface. You see the amazing depth of God's mercy? It overflows from His heart and it reveals the goodness that is God. The goodness that He gives to those who are in need. And it's that kind of mercy, brothers and sisters, that Jesus commands us to show. Look again at verse 36 and notice the connection with the character of God. Be merciful, Jesus says, even as your Father is merciful. Do you see the link? Our call to mercy is not a vague command to simply be nice. No, the call to mercy is a call to display the merciful heart of God. Friends, this is why it's vital for us to understand God's mercy. Because as His children, we're now tasked with being instruments of that mercy. We're the channel through which God often gives His mercy to those in need. In fact, that's a good way to think of your life as a Christian. We've received mercy so that we might give mercy. We've received mercy so that we might give mercy. And that calling, friends, is what drives Jesus' commands In verses 37 and 38, you see, Jesus' commands here are not disconnected from mercy. Rather, they are the expression of mercy flowing out from our lives to the lives of other people. So look again at the four commands, verse 37 to the first part of verse 38. Jesus says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, this is the crux of the passage. This is where, just like last week, we need to think carefully. Is Jesus prohibiting all forms of moral evaluation? Is Jesus prohibiting all forms of moral judgment? No, that's not what Jesus means. There are instances where we not only can issue moral judgments, but we ought to. For example, when Scripture speaks clearly on a moral issue, we must speak clearly. We don't have the choice not to speak. Where Scripture speaks clearly, we must speak clearly. So, it is not judgmental to say that homosexuality or or really any sexual activity outside of marriage is wrong. It's not judgmental to say that. It's not judgmental to say that drunkenness is wrong. It's not judgmental to say that greed and pride and lust and anger and lying are wrong. You shouldn't do them. That's not judgmental to say. Why? Because the Bible says that very clearly, friends. And where the Scriptures speak, we must speak. And the clearer the Scriptures are, the clearer we ought to be. What's more, the church, as a body of believers, is sometimes tasked with making these moral judgments very clear and very visible to the world. Consider the practice of redemptive church discipline, which we have done here at our congregation, and we will probably, God forbid, do again. Consider the practice of redemptive church discipline. When a professing Christian begins to live contrary to the Bible and then refuses to repent, the church must take action and issue a moral judgment. Think about Matthew 18, where Jesus says that the unrepentant person should be removed from the church. Or 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says even more strongly, let the unrepentant person be handed over to Satan, that he might learn not to blaspheme. Friends, those are moral judgments that the church is authorized to make, authorized by Jesus himself. In fact, do you know that passage that we love to quote where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them? Do you know what the theme of that passage is? Excommunicating someone from the body of Christ. These are judgments that we are tasked to make. We're authorized to make. Authorized by the Lord Jesus Himself. And in those situations, a church is absolutely right to do so. So is Jesus prohibiting all forms of moral judgment? No, He's not. But those authorized judgments that I just described are not Jesus' concern in verse 37. That's not what He's talking about. He's not talking about instances where the Bible speaks clearly, and He's not talking about instances where the church must take action to protect the purity of the Gospel. He's not concerned with those instances. Rather, Jesus has in view a misuse of those instances. That's what He's concerned with. Jesus is speaking against a misuse of that authority. Specifically, Jesus is prohibiting a critical spirit that's quick to condemn without any hope of forgiveness. Let me say that again. This is why Jesus links forgiveness and condemnation and judgment in verse 37. What Jesus prohibits is a critical spirit that is quick to condemn Without any hope of forgiveness. That's what he's speaking against. And let's be be honest, friends. That kind of attitude shows up far too often in our churches. For example, it's the kind of attitude that holds a person's sin against him, even though he has repented and sought forgiveness well, I know he's coming to church now, but do you know what he did when he was younger? What he did with such and such and so and so? Did you hear about that? That attitude condemns the man and withholds forgiveness from him. Or it's the kind of attitude that assumes the worst about another person even though you don't have all the information about what she really thinks or what she really said. Well, I don't know what she meant, but I just know her kind of people and they never change. That attitude judges the woman apart from any real knowledge. You just assume and then you exclude. Or it's the kind of attitude that elevates your opinion on secondary matters to the level of gospel truth and then judges everyone else based on the standard that you just made up. Well, no strong Christian would ever do this or that, so he's just not a serious Christian. He might not even be a Christian at all. That attitude makes your opinion the standard of truth, not God's. And then it it harshly excludes everybody who doesn't measure up to you. It makes you the definition of orthodoxy, which you don't want to be, friends. Or finally, it's the attitude that categorizes some people as just too far gone to ever receive forgiveness well, God hates sin and He hates those kinds of sins especially so I can berate and demean and belittle and make fun of that person because that's what they deserve. That attitude assumes that the Gospel's power is limited to whom you consider to be redeemable. Friends, do you hear what each of those examples is missing? Mercy. They're missing mercy. And that's the problem. That's what Jesus is speaking against here. When we live with a critical spirit that is quick to condemn others, we forget that we've received mercy. And forgetting the Gospel, we begin to treat other people as though what they deserve is all that matters. Instead, brothers and sisters, we as a church need to recover what the old saints called the judgment of charity. Do you know that phrase? The judgment of charity. If you don't know that phrase, or if you do, that doesn't really matter. I I, I want us to recover this idea of the judgment of charity. I did an internship after seminary at a church in Louisville where I could could sit in on the elders' meetings, but I wasn't allowed to talk. Um, And then they would make us leave before they did all the serious stuff. But I could sit in on the elders' meetings, and there was one, one of the pastors who's a very wise man, And in nearly every single elders' meeting, he would preface some statement by saying, Well, look, in the judgment of charity, this is what I think. And I think we should recover this idea the judgment of charity. What does that mean? Let me give you a few characteristics. The judgment of charity refuses to impugn people's motives. So it's the opposite of cynicism, it refuses to impugn people's motives. The judgment of charity thinks the best of other people, rather than assuming the worst about them. The judgment of charity doesn't approach every issue with a worst-case scenario analysis. And the judgment of charity does not elevate every issue to matters of life and death, or even questions of orthodoxy. So you could sum it up by saying the judgment of charity is quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, as James says. Friends, that kind of mindset is essential for the life and ministry of the church. And in our massive technological age where you can share what you think all the time about everything, we really need the judgment of charity towards one another. To not assume, to not presume, and to not impugn people's motives. In, in fact, I'm, I'm not sure how we can obey Jesus without the judgment of charity. So, one practical takeaway for today is that add a little item in your prayer list to ask uh, the Lord to help you grow in charity. Being charitable. Right? It's, it's just love and action. That's what it is. Right? To be charitable. Charitable. And then be on guard against those moments where you just you want to assume what the other person meant or what they're thinking. And you want to impugn their motives or you want to just categorize them in a lump sum judgment about everyone, uh, you know, about everyone in the world is like this because they said that. Friends, that, that doesn't lead to mercy. And it doesn't lead to love. So let's ask the Lord to give us a charitable spirit towards one another. And as the Lord gives us that grace, what we'll find is that mercy often follows in its footsteps. Let's keep going in in Jesus' sermon though. In in the flow of Jesus' teaching, the most important reason to show mercy is what we saw back in verse 36. It's the character of God. Since God is merciful, we as His children should also be merciful. But you'll notice at the end of verse 38 that Jesus gives another reason we ought to show mercy. Notice again what the Lord says, verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What is Jesus talking about? Well, uh, imagine a marketplace like one in Jesus' day where you had to go every day to buy your your provisions uh, for the family. And imagine you go to that marketplace and you want to buy today's grain they would measure it out to you, often in the front of your your robe, right? You'd pour the grain in, and so you'd say, I want $10 worth of grain, and they would put it in, but as they put it into your robe, what do you do? You shake it, right? So that it rests down at the bottom, so that there's no empty space at the bottom, because if I paid for a full day's worth of grain, I want a full day's worth. I don't want to get shortchanged. I want a good measure, pressed down and then overflowing. That image is what Jesus is getting at in verse 38. And He's using it to describe God's delight in blessing the merciful. So verse 38 is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. The measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why is that? Why does God bless the merciful? Why does He measure to us with the measure that we use? Is it because God owes us something when we receive mercy? No. God is a debtor to no one ever. Rather, God blesses the merciful because it brings Him glory. Right? God blesses the merciful because it bring, brings Him glory. You see, our displays of of mercy are really just the faint echoes of God's mercy to us. Our mercy is like the light of the moon. It doesn't come from us. It's just reflecting the mercy of God that's shined down upon us. You see? That's why God blesses the merciful. Because it puts the spotlight back on Him. When we show mercy, we're speaking of a God who is merciful. And so when you look at verse 38, you begin to notice how the glory of God Is one of the means that the Lord uses to motivate us to show mercy. The glory of God compels us to be merciful. I had a guy tell me once that the glory of God was not a good motivator for Christian living. It's not tangible enough, he said. It's not not practical enough. Well, Jesus disagrees with you, friend. And verse 38 is a good example of why. This is how God providentially made the world to work God delights to bless the merciful. Because in doing so, he gets the glory as the merciful God. And for the child of God, there is no more powerful motivator than that. We want to honor the Father, we want to receive His blessing, and we want to bring glory to His name. So show mercy and remember that with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you from God. Now let's go back to Jesus' command in verse 37. Verse 37. As we've seen, the Lord is calling us to turn away from a critical spirit that's quick to condemn. But where do we start? Where do we start with that? I know that this kind of critical spirit is present in my heart far too often. Maybe it's present in yours too. It's so much easier to condemn than to forgive, isn't it? And there's something deceptively satisfying about just cynically judging other things. I say it's deceptively satisfying because you think it feels good, but it really doesn't, right? So where do we start? How do we walk in faithfulness to Jesus' teaching? How do we turn away from that critical spirit that's quick to condemn? Well, that's where the second principle of the text can help us. Beginning in verse 39, Jesus gives us a warning. And if we heed His warning we can find some direction on how to turn away from that critical spirit that ignores mercy. So let's look at the second principle. Verses 39-42. to 42. Beware the pit of self-righteousness. Beware the pit of self-righteousness. Jesus starts His warning with a parable and a proverb. The parable is in verse 39, and it's a pithy picture. Listen again, verse 39. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, Jesus' concern is with spiritual blindness, as we'll see in a moment. But he uses the reality of physical blindness to make his point. The blind leading the blind is a precarious situation. Neither one can see the dangers around them, which means no one is actually leading. They're both at risk. Jesus then follows up that parable with a proverb. Notice verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, the proverbs give general wisdom related to life in God's world, and that's what Jesus gives here. His point is that teachers often shape their students in very formative ways. And this dynamic is woven into the fabric of how God made the world. We, We shouldn't be upset that teachers... Shape students after them, because that's how God wants it to be. He made the world that way. Teachers shape their students. One of the most impactful persons in my life, in fact, probably the person, humanly speaking, that's most responsible for me standing here preaching this sermon is a teacher. And I still talk to him today. I'm sure many of you have the same kind of situation. Some sort of teacher shaped the way that you think. Teachers form their students. They don't just impart knowledge, they shape them. Which means you should be careful about who you follow. But at this point in the sermon, Jesus is that's not where Jesus is going. He'll come back to that point in a couple of chapters. He's not primarily telling us to be wary of other people. No, Jesus is actually telling us here to be wary of ourselves. That's His point. He's telling you to look at you in verses 39 and 40. You see, Jesus is about to confront us with a kind of spiritual blindness that afflicts each of us on some level. And if we don't deal with this spiritual blindness, then we'll end up being the blind teacher in verses 39 and 40. So what is this? Spiritual blindness that Jesus is talking about. Well, it's what you can see in verses 41 and 42. It's self righteousness. That's the blindness that leads us into the pit. It's self righteousness, which we might define like this self righteousness is the refusal to see my sins because I'm too busy picking on the sins of others. The refusal to see my sins because I'm too busy picking on the sins of others. Notice Jesus' stinging rebuke, beginning in verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now the speck here is essentially a piece of dust, while the log is a ceiling beam that upholds an entire roof. So look up. Those. That's what he's talking about. Right? The speck is a piece of dust, and a log is one of those. And Jesus' point is powerful. It takes some level of pride, friends, not to mention blindness, to pick at your brother's dust when you have a ceiling beam protruding from your eye. It takes some level of pride, not to mention blindness. And that attitude makes you the blind teacher from verses 39 and 40. It makes you someone who leads other people into a pit. You see the connection? That, that's the flow of the argument there. Self-righteousness blinds us, friends. It blinds us so that we miss our own glaring faults while obsessing over the tiny flaws in other people. In that kind of mindset, what good can you possibly do for your brother? You can't even see clearly in your own life. In fact, that's Jesus' conclusion in verse 42. Listen again to what He says. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Friends, the answer to Jesus' question is obvious. With a log coming out of your own eye, you can't see clearly to do any good to your brother. And you have no right to. You can't see because self-righteousness, this tendency to downplay your sins while exaggerating other people's, that attitude makes you blind. But here's the key to the text. Here's the key that ties together all the the paragraphs. When when we live this way, now follow me here, when we live with this kind of self-righteous attitude, where do we end up? What kind of people do we become? People with a critical spirit that are quick to condemn with no hope of forgiveness. That's where we end up. Again, I hope you see the connection. Self-righteousness, that tendency to downplay your sins while exaggerating others, that attitude is the main pitfall to being a merciful person. It's the main pitfall that keeps you from obeying verse 36. So if we want to walk in faithfulness to Christ, then we must first get the log out of our own eyes. We must first deal with our own self-righteousness. And in His kindness, or we could say in His mercy, Jesus gives us the remedy. Notice the final sentence, verse 32. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. A hypocrite you know is a pretender. He's like a stage actor who wears a mask. And the hypocrite's mask is this appearance of righteousness. That's the hypocrite's facade. He thinks, if I pick at other people's sin enough, then everybody will think that I'm really righteous and that I care about holiness. But therein lies the hypocrite's downfall. Picking at other people's uh, sin while there's a log protruding from your own face only proves that you're blind. And that you don't really care about righteousness at all. Because if you did, you'd get the log out of your own eye. Listen friends, the desire for righteousness, that hunger for holiness, should always burn hottest in relationship to our own lives. If you're more concerned about the sin in the culture than you are the sin in your own heart, then friend, you may need to rethink what Jesus is saying here. Before I can call you out, I should examine myself first, calling out my own sin and seeking by grace to remove the ceiling beam from my own eye. That's the necessary step to being a merciful person, brothers and sisters. It's this dogged commitment day after day to destroy the self righteous bent of our hearts. A self righteous person, by definition, cannot be a merciful person, they're mutually exclusive. They can't go together. And that's why Jesus ends the section where He does with a call to deal with our own sins before we look to others. Did you catch that, friends? At the end of verse 32, Jesus doesn't tell us to never help our brother with the speck in his eye. That's not what He says. He says, deal with your own log first and then you will see clearly enough to be a means of mercy to your brother. Why is that? Why is dealing with my own sin first so important? Well, of course, because you don't want to be that kind of prideful, arrogant person who deals with others before himself. That's one reason. But there's another reason. And it's this. Because as I deal with my sin day after day, what do I see from God towards me? Mercy. Mercy. Dealing with my own sin reminds me of how often God has been slow to condemn me. It's a miracle that I'm a Christian. Dealing with my own sin allows me to see that God is always faithful to forgive me when I confess and when I look to Christ. Even when I am confessing the same sin that I've confessed a hundred times before. And so, as I deal with my own sin first, again and again, I see again and again that God has been merciful to me, a sinner. And in seeing God's mercy, friends, do you know what happens to me? My heart is changed. That hardness of heart begins to melt away. And that pride that comes with the log protruding from my own eye begins to erode because mercy cuts it away. And seeing God's mercy to me again and again, I'm transformed to show mercy myself. Friends, that's the power of the Gospel. That's having your mind renewed and being transformed after the image of Christ. It's the good news of mercy to a sinner like me which then changes me to show mercy to others as well. And it's an astounding reality. It's the power of the Gospel that through the Gospel, I'm transformed by the very mercy of God to show mercy. It's amazing. Brothers and sisters, one of my goals for this sermon was to change, perhaps just a little, how we think about the Christian life. I, I want to change how you think about the Christian life, even if just a little today. The pursuit of holiness, what the Bible calls sanctification. That pursuit is not merely an individual quest to reform your conduct. Note, sanctification is, in some sense, God's means of equipping you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the change that I want you to see. The more that we grow in godliness, which includes seeing our need for mercy the more we are enabled to show mercy and therefore love our neighbors as ourselves. You see it there in verse 42. When you take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to help your brother with the speck in his. So how do I love my neighbor effectively? By growing in godliness first. What a difference that is in how we're often taught to think about the Christian life. It's not just me and Jesus, you see. Even my individual growth is for the good of the church. What's more, my individual growth is part of how God shows mercy to those in need. I don't think we can be reminded of this enough, brothers and sisters. It's something that we ought to say to ourselves and something that we ought to say to other people. Christianity is not a private faith, it's not just you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus and your neighbor whom you're responsible to love. Our lives are bound up together. So much so that even the individual work of killing sin has a merciful and a blessed effect in the life of the church. So does the church have a problem with judgmentalism? Should more of us deconvert in favor of a less narrow version of Christianity? No, that, that's not the answer, friends. Our problem is not with making moral judgments. Our problem is the same as it's been in every age. We lose sight of the Gospel. That's the problem. We lose sight of God's mercy to us in Christ. And as a result, we cut ourselves off from the very power of God that enables us to show the mercy we've been tasked to show. But the good news is, listen to me on this, the good news is that a church built on the Gospel, a church that celebrates the mercy of God to sinners like you and me, that kind of church, brothers and sisters, can do two things at the same time. Walk faithfully to love your neighbor and walk faithfully to contend for the truth. Both of them together. We don't need fewer convictions, friends. We don't need fewer convictions. We need, rather, our convictions to be more tightly wedded to the Gospel. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So may God make make us a church that loves His mercy so that we would be a church full of people who show mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that reorients our hearts and minds and helps us to think rightly about ourselves and about You and about others and about this world. Father, we would be adrift in a sea of confusion and deception, were it not for the Holy Spirit of God giving us eyes to see savingly and faithfully the truth of God in the Scriptures. Thank You, God, for being merciful to us. Thank You, God, that You are merciful to sinners. Father, please change us and transform us by that same mercy that we would be a merciful church. That we would be a church that delights Father, to show compassion and goodness and kindness to those in need while also being a church that speaks very clearly about the things that are true and unchanging in Christ. Oh, Father, please help us. We want to see the name of Christ magnified. We want to see sinners saved. We want to see our own children brought to know the Lord Jesus. We want to see our own hearts, Father, moving away from self-righteousness and more towards mercy that loves others as You love us. Help us, God. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.